This week on Dig Me Out. This is a lesson to all you bands out there. When we review albums that are like 14 or 16 songs, I feel like it's much easier to be more critical of something like that. When there's only nine, I found myself being more forgiving. Tim and Jay review 10 Minute Warning by 10 Minute Warning. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, it's episode 165, 165. It's our fourth season, and we are traveling this week back to the Pacific Northwest, a place that we have not visited in uh, quite some time. Groovy. For a uh, for a '90s podcast, you think we'd be there every other week, based on what people think about the '90s music. I know, I know, uh, but it's actually been uh, quite a while, and we're actually this is a weird band in terms of where they stand in in sort of '90s history, because for all intents and purposes, uh, <laughs> thanks for saying it correctly. Uh, they're not a 90s band, but their release came out in the 90s. And I'm speaking of 10 Minute Warning. It was a suggestion by Gavin Reed. It was actually his uh, his free suggestion after he won the 2013 uh, contest. And he got a pick. He gets to pick a free uh, suggestion every year for the length of the podcast based on winning last year. And he suggested we check out 10 Minute Warning and their uh, 1998 album. 10-Minute Warning. So, Jay, were you familiar with 10-Minute Warning? No. I mean, I had heard the name, but it's sort of a... It's one of those names, like, it sounds familiar, and you hear it, but then right. you can't quite put place where you heard it and why. So, other than hearing the name, I didn't know a whole lot about the band. I kept trying to call him 10-Second Warning for some reason, but I don't know why. It yeah. sounded sounded better. Rather than 10 minute warning. 10 minute warning is like, you got a lot of time there. Right, right. <laughs> I thought the same thing. It's not as urgent and, to me. You know, if you would have asked me what they sounded like, I would have thought they were like a punk band. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I was thinking of another band or, or what, but uh, yeah, that's my familiarity with the band. The other thing I was confusing calling them two minute warning uh, as in a football game, but sure. that's neither here nor there. Let's talk about. Uh, why Gavin picked this band, uh, which will come up in the history of the band. History of the band. So 10 Minute Warning originally started in the early 80s as the Farts with a Z. (laughs) Yeah. The band included Paul Solger on guitar, David Garrigus on bass, Blaine Fart on vocals, uh, a gentleman named Duff McKagan, or, or is that McKagan? Mm. Yes, McKagan <laughs> on guitar, uh, Greg Gilmore on drums. Uh, Blaine Fart left. Um, he he was uh, took the band name with him, and he took the band, and he was replaced by Steve Verewolf, V A R E Wolf, like not werewolf, Verewolf. So they, I guess, with leaving the fart behind. That, why didn't they call the band that? Or wait, wait, did Verewolf replace him? Yeah. Oh, Verewolf replaced Fart. Awesome. 
Yeah. That'd be a great name. Uh, so in 1983, Duff and um, Garrigus left the band, and Daniel House became the new bass player in 1984. That's when they recorded their first album, uh, but it was never released. In December 84, um, Gil- Greg Gilmore and Paul Soldier left the band, and they basically split up. Paul Soldier went to New York, and Greg Gilmore went to Los Angeles. Gilmore, or yeah, or Gilmore went to Los Angeles, reunited with um, Duff, and joined a band called Road Crew. Oh no, sorry, that was Paul Soldier went joined the band called Road Crew, and then Greg Gilmore went back to Davis. He went, he went, or went back to Seattle. Uh, he replaced Matt Cameron in Skin Yard and worked with Jack and Dino on solo projects. Um, he then was asked to join Mother Love Bone uh, shortly thereafter Andrew Wood died and um, Gilmore would go on to play in some other bands. Uh, so is he on the record? Um, I don't know. Because I, yes. I recognized him from the uh, the press photos. So I think he's the drummer that appears in the photos, but some of them. He might be. Died. And then everybody knows where Matt Cameron ended up playing with arguably two of the biggest Pearl bands. Jam? Yeah, and Soundgarden. He was a Soundgarden drummer before Pearl Jam. No. Yeah. Oh, okay. But but you know what? People probably know him as the drummer in Pearl Jam more now That's than the up. drummer in Soundgarden. That's messed up. If you know him that way, then you have problems. Because he's actually been in sound in Pearl Jam longer. Really? Yeah. Well, if you think oh. about it, he was only in Soundgarden for like less than ten years. That he's been in me. he's been in Pearl Jam since what the late nineties, so over fifteen years. That's disgusting. <laughs> Sorry to disgust you. <laughs> Sorry. So after uh, Duff left a little band called Guns N' Roses in nineteen eighty seven, he moved back to Seattle where he started talking with old friends, including one Mr. Stone Gossard of the band that discussed Jay Pearl Jam. Uh, Stone Gossard told him that he used to love 10 Minute Warning that it was actually that band or the farts whichever you want to call them uh, that was one of the original uh, reasons why he started playing guitar so the 10 Minute Warning members reunited with a new vocalist named Christopher Blue because uh, Steve Verwolf was in prison um, the band finally recorded an album, not necessarily all the songs that were going to be originally recorded, but some of them, and they released it on Sub Pop. It was produced by Jack and Dino, and there were two Farts songs, Is This the Way and Buried, that were recorded, um, and then there's a song called Mez, which was later uh, re-recorded for a Duff McKagan solo album, which has, upon me reading this, has not been released, but maybe it's coming out soon, I don't know. Um, so the album was released in 1998. Uh, Paul Solger left due to musical differences. Uh, 10 Minute Warning played their last show on August 22nd, 1998 at the Roseland Theater in Portland, Oregon. And then, of course, Duff went on to play with um, Slash and Matt Sorum and Velvet Revolver. Uh, Paul Solger was diagnosed and success- successfully treated for cancer in 2004. Um, he lives in eastern Washington, and then Steve Verwolf uh, actually died of a heroin overdose in August of 2008. So that is the brief and odd history of 10 
minute warning. If you would like to suggest an album for us to review, visit our request review page at digmeoutpodcast.com and maybe like Gavin Reed last year, your your selection will be picked at the end of the year for a free uh, year uh, once a year selection for the rest of your life or the life of the podcast. Who knows? It could happen to you. We did get some Facebook feedback. Uh, of course, Mr. Gavin Reed, who suggested the album, gave us some. He said, awesome, I've been waiting for this. It's astounding how this slipped under the radar for most of us. I found it and bought it based on the Sub Pop label and Charles Peterson's style photography, or is it actually his work? And despite being slightly 80s metal name, I lost the disc through the sands of time and am wrapped to be united. Can't wait to hear what others think. And the other comment was from Scott Russell Halgram. Clearly they are named after what I give my son before we leave the park. There you have it. <laughs> feedback on 10-minute warning. I'm guessing by the lack of feedback, it's probably because a lot of people are not familiar with this band or this album, which is, you know, I would say this is a pretty obscure album. I don't think that this sold in the hundreds of thousands. Well, or, yeah, but it, you got Jack and Dino, Sub Pop, and Duff McKagan. How is that? How did that well, be obscure? I think by the late 90s, a lot of stuff was coming out on Sub Pop that didn't necessarily blow the world, you know, wide open for a lot of bands. I mean... Yeah, but we should still, like, the <clears throat> nerds like us who, <laughs> like, you know what I mean, are aware of this stuff should know this band, right? Sure. Or at least, I'd like, remember, like, oh, yeah, I remember when that came out. It was, you know, we were... we. Yeah, this was when we were... 98. This is... Yeah. uh. Transitioning from from college to adult life. Yeah. So probably <sighs> just came out the week we were moving is what the problem was. We were we were too busy loading up the, the U-Haul. And uh, <laughs> we didn't know that this came out. So, Jay, let's talk about this record. Let's talk about what we like and uh, what we don't like uh, and how it works overall for the self-titled 1998 album 10-Minute Warning let me let me set you up with this first before I before we delve into that. So there's a there's an odd pedigree here because Duff McKagan is involved, and people probably I would say the majority of people who know who Duff McKagan are probably have no idea that he played in a punk band in Seattle in the 1980s. They probably know him as the guy from Guns N' Roses. So, as someone who is familiar with Duff McKagan's career, both as a member of Guns N' Roses, and then post. Um, do you hear Duff in this playing? And what did you? What worked for you? I do, and what's interesting is that I didn't do research on this band. That's not my role on the show. No. Um, and, and by design. So I, you know, sometimes I'll poke around and look, but um, I kind of leave that to you because I like to be surprised on the show if there's any interesting tidbits to come out that I wasn't aware of. So I didn't do any research in the band. I didn't put together that this was the band he used to be in. So I didn't I didn't have any of that knowledge going in. So I listened to it uh, completely free of that. Mm-hmm. And I heard, yeah, I heard a lot of Guns N' Roses in it. I also heard a lot of, like, obviously Seattle kind of sounding. To me, if you would have asked me when this record came out, I would have said early 90s, like, around the time of uh, when did we the Grunge Track record we reviewed 
sort of around yeah. that time. Maybe. Like 90, Yeah. I would have guessed that. The only thing that... Well, even with the production. I mean, the production's really good, but it's still like, you know, is, I would have believed. If you tell me it came out in 91, I would have believed you. So I heard a lot of like Circus Power. I heard a lot of Guns N' Roses, which to me in my head as I'm listening to, I'm thinking, uh, uh, you know, this is a band that was inspired by Guns N' Roses, <laughs> you know, as I'm listening to the right. record, you know, and especially with, uh, you really hear it in the verses, the guitars and the verses, there's that um, muted Les Paul sound. And there's like two guitars that are kind of like playing the same thing, but uh, it's just, it's that Guns N' Roses sound where they're like, just the act, they're accenting different things, but they're playing the same kind of riff. And you get this really cool, like, it's tight, but it still has this raggedness to it that mm-hmm. what the Guns N' Roses sound is all about. Most of the verses on this record have that sound, which I enjoy quite a bit. Today, prior to the show, uh, I'm trying to remember why. I think it was this, maybe the singer. I was actually curious to know if anybody in this band was involved with the band The Bronx, which is a band I like a lot. Because more and more I listened to this record, I kept hearing that band. And so I was curious to see, like, um, I wonder if these guys went on to be in that band or another band that's similar to that. Or So that's when I did the research on the history and saw, oh, Steph McKagan. And then I started putting everything together. And so then the whole Guns N' Roses thing obviously made sense. Right. So the things I like about it are, are I, I like that aspect of the band. I mean, it's Guns N' Roses-esque, but without your typical you know, glammy kind of take on that. This is the dirty, dirgy, kind of punkier part of the of Guns N' Roses um, with a, a pretty interesting singer. I don't know who this guy is. I don't know what other bands he's been in, but... Christopher I did, Blue. Yeah. Yeah. I dig his voice. I mean, he's... He kind of reminded me of the guy from Circus Power. He kind of reminded me of... Uh, um, a little bit of Eni Asbury from time to time. Uh, it kind of reminded me of Lemmy, like all these different, but he had his own thing going on, you know? Yeah. Uh, and he had a good amount of range, which, and, it, and I don't mean like, I just mean like he could do like spokeny kind of stuff. He could do screams. He could do, you know, kind of low bellows. He could, could do, you know, kind of get a little bit higher. And so, it made it his voice made it particularly interesting for me and uh the other thing i for the most part i think the choruses save a lot of these songs um while they're not necessarily hooky they are uh usually unexpected so uh, my one of my takeaways on this record was i felt like you really need to sit through the whole song because if you just judge it by the intros, sometimes some of these intros are very like expected, boilerplate, not very mm. interesting. Even the even the verses are kind of like, you know, less than overwhelming, um, low lackluster. But when they get to the chorus, the song usually shifts in a really cool way. And then by the time you get to the second verse, then it all starts to make sense, and, and it carries through through the rest of the song. So. Uh, you know that that shift to the chorus is pretty consistently on the record is is something I liked quite a bit and uh, it really helped make the record work a lot better. To uh, to follow up on your 
you know, observation about Christopher Blue and his vocal. I was I was amazed because he kind of went from like, like you said, like there's this sort of dirty version of Guns N' Roses without, you know, obviously without the axle, you know, screeching. Um, yeah. And he's bringing it from a much more like Seattle 80s, you know, grunge in the same way that like, like a Green River or something like that. But then he like goes off in these different directions. There's a part in uh, track two, Buried, towards the end of the song, where they kind of do a breakdown, and he starts like bellowing almost like Bono. Like mm-hmm. I could I could hear like this like the old school Bono of like you know um, live at Red Rocks EP, <laughs> like where he's mm-hmm. singing War and yeah. uh, like that's that sort of era of Bono and. Um, it was pretty cool. Like he's able to get nasty when he needs to get nasty. He's able to like kind of bellow and get get a little bit more, um, I don't know, dramatic. I guess would be the word with his mm-hmm. with his vocal. Whereas I think some people who are you know some singers are not able to, especially uh, punk or, or hardcore singers, don't necessarily have the range or maybe even like the ability to get outside of their own little comfort zone with whatever style of music. And I think that's one of the things that works on this record is that they're able to play, you know, like a track like No More Time, which is like a really fast, like double time, old school kind of punk beat. And he's able to do as well vocally on a track like that as he is doing like a song like Face First, which has like the most Guns N' Roses riff that has never been on a Guns N' Roses song. Like yeah. that that's totally off of uh, appetite for destruction. those are two different styles of singing i mean those are that's that's a a completely different delivery um from you know it's almost like uh that riff almost reminds you of like you could be mine or something which isn't off of uh, is not off of uh um, appetite i i understand but it has that same feel is is duff playing guitar in this band i think he would be playing bass but i you know i think as he's been a songwriter in for a lot of this stuff Correct, which I think he's he writes those riffs on guitar. So, but he was the well, he was the bass he, player in the band. Okay, because I think he's gone back and forth between guitar and bass in his career. Right, bass player. It just makes me wonder. Like, yeah, I agree that riff and a lot of the like I said, a lot of the guitar riffs and parts, even the production of it and how they're you know, tracking the guitars is is very Guns N' Roses, which makes me either, which makes me wonder how much, you know. How much more did he have to do with Guns N' Roses than we even know? 
you know, the right, especially the first record, like the writing of that record and the writing of the riffs and the guitar parts and just mm-hmm. the, the overall style of that. Or did he learn from being in that band just, you know, that style and how to do that and then brought it to this band when they recorded this record? I kind of would be interested to know the answer to that, but there's a, there's no doubt a connection there. Yeah. And guitar wise. Right. And it, I th- when reading about the history of the band, I think the thing that was interesting is that the farts and and afterward changing their name to Ten Minute Warning, they were essentially a, a punk band, and they were one of the first bands to start slowing it down, which is where you basically get the grunge sound. Right. You're taking those like heavy riffs, you know, up really up tempo and start slowing them and slowing them down, and you get you start getting that muddy dirgy kind of sound. And then you have sort of the infancy of what would become grunge for, you know, a simplistic sort of you know, review of it. Sure. Um, but I like that they're able to take what would be considered, I guess, sort of uh, mundane or not necessarily, you know, groundbreaking uh, lyrical content. With, I'm thinking of like a song like Disconnected. I think there's probably a billion bands that in the 90s that probably wrote a song about like Disconnected, like... Yep. You know that was always that was a theme for a lot of songs, but they're able to pair it with like some pretty wicked guitar playing in that song. I now, agree. Yeah, there's um even say track two, which starts off with a pretty you know it's like a swingy kind of punky bass line. And, you know the guitars just lock up with that. Um, that's it. I think in, in less capable hands, that song is totally forgettable. But by the time they get to the chorus, things shift, and all of a sudden then that verse comes back and makes sense, and the vocal performance is so good that it, it takes material that's probably you know average or subpar and elevates it just through the performance of it and um, you know just some good decisions.
stuff like um, you know, No More Time, which I think I think a song you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, again, for the most part, it's punk song, right? But they right. they do these enough accents and kind of cool shifts and, and turns and just there's enough variety and musicianship in it that it elevates it beyond just being, you know, a generic punk song. And that, that's kind of where they, for me, the, the comparison to a band like the Bronx comes in because essentially what that band is, is they are a punk band, but they're really good musicians and they have a very strong, like melodic sense. So when you combine those two things together, you get a really tight, you know, uh, approach to punk music, but with a good sense of melody and enough technical ability to do almost like post-punk kind of like drum, you know, kind of gymnastics, you know, they can do accents and cool time shifts and just right really little things here and there that just elevate it, make it interesting. Um, which, you know, I think that for me is kind of the story of this record. What did not work for you on this record? Yeah, not a whole lot. I really, I, I, I like this a lot. I mean, it was, it, you started the show off by saying, um, you know, it's been a while since we've done a band from the Northwest. And I, I, um, I connected with that, you know, going on this record because we hadn't heard anything like this in a while. You know, it's mm-hmm. been, I don't know, maybe a year since we've re- reviewed a record like this, where it's just sort of like a, a you know, um, a real grunge record, you know? Right. And I, I, I got to say, I probably like it, liked it better in my mind when I thought it came out earlier than it did. That's the one thing that's kind of, uh, disconnected for me. <laughs> no pun intended. Right. Um, but you know, if there's something not to like, maybe the, you know, the material's not as strong as it could be. Um, like I said, I think in a lot of cases they elevate, material through the performance you know they could i guess a a hookier chorus here and there but it's kind of not what the music's about so it doesn't really bother me that much uh, the production's good I, I even like like uh, the last song which is kind of a ballad feel but it's like a modern to me it's like a modern version of house of the rising sun by the animals huh. it's kind of this you know picked out blues thing that you know, verse-wise, is very reminiscent of that song. Now they don't, they don't do that in the core. You know, they don't rip the chorus off, and they're not like blatantly referencing the song. But it feels like that kind of, that kind of, um, you know, vibe. And I love the vocal, and it's kind of like this spoken wordy kind of rambling vocal thing, and really interesting chorus again. And you know, then that's a song that. You know, it's for a lot of other bands probably wouldn't have worked as well, but um, they're they're able to pull it off. So there's not a whole lot about this record that I that I can really single out and say I don't like. I think with pictures is which is the last track you're talking about. Yeah. Think why that song gets saved. I mean, it's a six and a half minute long song. It could have turned into a long, boring sort of dirge, but they're able to raise the tension throughout the song in different ways um, that combined with his vocals that it just sort of, it stays interesting. It does, you know, a lot of bands probably would have just sat on sort of like one, one thing for the six and a half minutes. He's got so much personality in the vocal. Yeah. It goes from like creepy to like 
you know, over the top to energetic to, you know, drunken slur to, you know, there's just so much interesting stuff going on vocally. It's funny that you mentioned that sort of drunken slur sort of thing. Like there are times where he, you know, evokes almost like a Nick Cave sort of feel with like his like creepy drunken sort of vibe. Mm. Uh, but then there were the times where I was thinking like, uh, like the guy from Electric Six. That that guy was coming to mind yeah. too, in a in in a different way. Um, yeah, I wrote uh, Bobcat Goldthwait on the first track. <laughs> Bobcat Goldthwait, nice. So um, yeah, I mean it's uh, it, he's doing a lot. The I think that from what we're both saying, it sort of reflects that. So I guess maybe that's a that's a negative. Maybe it's too much at times. I don't know. It didn't really bother me though. It, it just a lot of bands that do that did this kind of music. The the vocal would be the downfall. You know, they didn't all have Chris Cornell, so you sort of had right. guys who like would come up with like basically one way to sing, and every song would have that, and they would tend to like maybe follow follow the guitar and be kind of droney or. So, uh, of this type of music, it's one of the most, um, from a vocal standpoint, probably one of the stronger bands that I've heard. What do you think of track six, Earth? Which is how I'm pronouncing it, but it's not spelled that way. Because that one threw me for Uh, a little bit of a loop. Yeah, probably not my favorite song on the record. There's some interest. It's one of those songs where the parts of the song, there's nothing wrong with the individual parts. I kind of like the individual parts, but they just sound like, a bunch of parts they had laying around that they jammed yeah. together. Yeah, so. so that's what I was thinking because we start out with like that clean sort of affected. I don't know if it's like a um, tremolo chorus sort of thing going on, mm-hmm. and then the verses are like very bland, sort of generic guitar riff. But when you get to the chorus, it has a pretty sweet guitar riff in the chorus. Mm-hmm. But those three parts don't necessarily add up to, like, the best song. Right. <laughs> and I struggle because as I'm listening, I was like, oh, I like that when they switched the chorus. But then I'm thinking, well, wait a minute. <laughs> like, but it took me two minutes to get there. And, <laughs> yeah, and, like, yeah. it doesn't really go with the part before it. So No. Yeah. It sounds like it's out of a completely different song. Mm-hmm. So that, that was that was one where I was like, oh, this isn't... Because they do do a... They do do... They do a lot of shifting, you know. They'll go. They'll have pretty big shifts uh, from verses to choruses. Sometimes they're going from regular to halftime, you know, sure. for a chorus, which is a pretty, you know, that's a pretty standard songwriting trick mm-hmm. to sort of drop the the tempo for a, a chorus. But they tend to always match them up really well, and that was the song where it was like blaringly obvious that these were two different parts, sort of put together. So I, that's. That was one song that I was like iffy on.
pretty short record. It's not even 40 minutes. Right. It's only nine songs. So I'm not going to get too nitpicky with it. That's I why think... I didn't call it out because it's like right. it's nine songs and like, you know, the chorus I did like, it didn't feel like it fit together right like we talked about. So it was, mm-hmm. it's probably my least favorite song on the record, but um, it doesn't, this is so short. And this is, a, I guess this is a lesson to all you bands out there. When we review albums that are like 14 or 16 songs, I feel like it's easy, much easier to be more critical of something like that. But when there's only nine, you know, it's just, I found myself being more forgiving because you get through the whole record so quickly and I don't know. It all seemed, it, it all gels together, I guess is my point. Like this sounds like one band from start to finish that has a, some different shades to it, but for the most part, like it all glues together and I don't feel as prone to, you know, single out particular songs and say this one is, you know. Right really not good so on our scale of worthy album better ep decent single i'm just going to go ahead and say i think this is a worthy album i i really the only song that that i would consider you know not worthy is the one we just mentioned track six earth or earthy or however you say it uh the rest of the record is just it's fun like you it totally transports you even though this isn't an early 90s grunge album like we mentioned (laughs) it makes you think that that's what you're listening to and it's a lot of like the guitar playing if you appreciate that sort of les paul you know big riff guitar playing it sounds really really good and it doesn't sound it's not you know we talked about the king's x album last week and how produced that record was now perfectly i mean it's it's a jack and dino record so it's not glossy it just sounds it just sounds heavy and thick and ballsy right it sounds good but not overproduced Um, yeah yeah i think it's a worthy record and um oh the uh the year is the only thing that throws me um yeah and i think we answered the i think i answered my own question at the beginning of the show was why didn't we hear about this i i suppose it was just so late at the time in 1998 this is probably the last thing that we wanted to hear you know as a uh, as music fans um they probably seemed so tired at that point you know right but now oh god yeah i mean and i didn't want to hear a grunge record in 1998 you kidding right me? right but now it's like so it, it's it was refreshing i mean honestly when this record started playing and i got through you know the first couple songs it was like it was kind of refreshing it was kind of a a palate cleanser Right. <laughs> Which I never would have thought going into this show that a record like this, I would have said that about because I figured we were, we would we would have reviewed about, you know, uh, 500 records by now that sounded like this. But um, we should also point this. out that in 1998, when this came out, I was freaking the hell out because I was leaving college. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, I have to get a job and yeah. I have to live in the real world and start paying bills. And yeah. So well, we a few records I mean, slipped under my radar. Think about the type of music you're listening to do then, though, right? You're heavily into, like, Wilco and Kathy and Real and the Afghan Wigs and probably the Pumpkins. And, just, mm-hmm. and even the Pumpkins at that time were, like, doing electronic music for Christ's sake. So right, that's, yeah. Everybody door. was, we had gone through this style of music and we're looking for the, way beyond looking for the next thing. So, uh Soundgarden was gone by then. Pearl Jam was off doing weird stuff for a while. And yeah, Alice in Chains was gone. Stone Temple Pilots had imploded. 
Yeah, no, I wouldn't. You and I were not looking for a, a grunge record in, in 1998 that sounded like early 90s Seattle, so or late 80s Seattle, whatever. So it makes sense that we missed it, and we're correcting that mistake right now. So uh, we can both give a unqualified uh, worthy album to this particular release. So we need to thank uh, Gavin Reed for picking this one. Uh, another uh, very strong choice by Mr. Reed. Always brings to the table something interesting for us to listen to. And uh, you can do so as well by visiting our website, uh, digmeoutpodcast.com, and hit our request review page. We got a lot of good reviews coming up, a lot of interesting records, some of them outside of our comfort zone, some of them uh, well nestled right into our customers our comfort zone so uh it'll be an interesting uh, couple of months that are coming up because they've been coming in fast and furious and i just keep putting them on the schedule so um we're uh we're gonna have a lot of cool stuff coming up so oh and if you like what you heard please head on over to our itunes page and leave us a little positive feedback we'd appreciate that we'd like our ego stroked on occasion so uh that would be a uh do us a do us a kind We'd uh, we'd appreciate that. That's it. We're done, Jay. You can uh, you can go back to uh, listening to more of Ten Minute Warning. I, I I hear that there are some unreleased songs, hmm. like the early demos that are out there. So maybe we can find those. I'm sure they're on the YouTube. I'm sure there are. And that's it for us. Thanks everybody for listening. And uh, we want to actually, uh, I forgot to mention this uh, in an earlier episode, but want to give a uh, thanks to everyone at Radio IO for adding us to the lineup on the Music Discussion channel. And uh, if you have not checked us out, we're on there. And there's a lot of cool shows that are on that channel. So be sure to give a what, listen to uh, Radio IO. What if they're listening to us on Radio IO? What should they do? They should go to our website and check out our weekly and daily posts various things that go on we post a video from the band that we're going to be reviewing for the week we do a music news roundup for the week including new releases and interesting articles about 90s music and our friday preview where we talk about what record record what album what collection of mp3s (laughs) we will be uh reviewing in the near future and allow you to chime in so you can add your comments to the show so uh, yeah. thank you, everybody. Whatever whatever format, whatever transmission device you're receiving this program on or through, we appreciate your support. That's it. We're out. Uh, tune in next week for another episode of Dig Me Out. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Mm-hmm.